You're listening to Training Data from Cosmic Works, which is a part of the IQT podcast series, which can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. Fire up a Jupiter notebook and crack open an ice cold, sugar free Red Bull, because you're listening to Training Data, a podcast series brought to you by Cosmic Works and Nikutel Lab. Today's a big day for this pod. Uh, most importantly, and for the first time, we have an InQtel portfolio company joining us for the discussion. Second, we have some new voices from InQtel. And third, producer Kristen is joining us for the first time in the studio today. So a lot of first. So without further ado, let me welcome our guest caster, which is, I guess, what you call a presenter in a podcast, uh, Peter Wang. Peter is the CTO and co-founder of Anaconda, which is a leading open data science platform uh, for Python. He's joining us today live from Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Also in the studio uh, with us today is a training data veteran, and some say a computer vision grand meister, Adam Van Etten. Adam, great to have you here. Uh, I'm moderately happy to be here. <laughs> also, we have a, a training data newcomer, Coley Lewis. He is currently a director of IC support at InQtel and has worked closely with Peter and Anaconda over the years. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very glad to be here and uh, talking with Peter. And last but not least, we have the voices behind the voices, producer Kristen. Thanks for joining us today in the studio. Great to be here, as always. Well, we have a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. So, Peter, since its founding in 2011, Anaconda has rapidly ascended to being the leading Python-based platform uh, for data science. Uh, from the Cosmic Works point of view, it, it's hard to envision our work without it. And so one thing that's definitely I would like to bring up is that a lot's changed since we started working with, at the time, Continuum Analytics. When you used to search in Google, uh, the first thing that came up was Nicki Minaj. And now, as of like yesterday, I typed it in, and guess what? Anaconda is the first one on there. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Sign of success. And yet, despite that success, uh, I'm not sure if, if everyone knows how the company got started. Uh, could you give us a little background on how you went from creating the PyData community to running this leading AI startup? Yeah, so, so in the uh, early dark ages of like 2011, I guess, um, my co-founder Travis and I, we, we were really seeing that there was a potential for the scientific Python and the numerical Python stuff to have a much broader relevance uh, beyond just science engineering, sort of these very niche areas of what one called numerical computing. Um, and especially with the increasing conversation in the industry around, um, around big data uh, and the term data science was starting to kind of float around. Um, so we, we thought that, you know, Hey, Python is already being used here. It's been self-selected by the practitioners, kind of the early folks in that field. So we, we jumped into that. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we did three things all at the same time. Um, we started the company continuum analytics. Um, uh, we started the Pi data community. So we sort of rebranded the SciPy stuff into more data analytics oriented things. Um, and then we also created a nonprofit called NumFocus. So we did all that at once. And then in the context of the company, we 
we had a few different technical areas that we wanted to push. You know, we wanted to accelerate things like NumPy. We thought we could make it go faster and more scalable. Um, we wanted to bring um, all of the stuff to be more accessible. We wanted to create web technologies um, or bridge these two web technologies. So make data science a first-class citizen in the web and vice versa, make web tools first-class in the data science world. There was a whole lot of stuff all at once. Uh, I think some of the early employees quipped that we were like five or six startups in one, and, and we really were. Um, so that's kind of how all that got started right in the beginning of 2012. I would say, you know, one thing that, you know, you've spoken a lot about uh, recently is just the, the collapse of what we would call traditional tech silos. So this is IT and data management and just general analytics. So going from your founding to where you are today, how does Anaconda help bridge the gaps across these silos? Um, well, that, yeah, there's, there's definitely those silos. And I think um, collapse is, I mean, they haven't collapsed yet. I mean, it's sort of, you know, the, the whole Monty Python, the, the, the night, the black night, right? I'm not dead yet. The silos are still there. <laughs> they still serve a function. Um, all the people that inhabit those silos, I think they recognize there's a lot, of, maybe there's a lot more things outside of their silo walls than are inside, or a lot of new things happening outside that should have been historically on the inside. Um, so I think everyone, you know, trying to take a very positive view on this stuff. Uh, I think everyone is aware that those old lines may be now um, crossed and there's a lot more multidisciplinary collaboration that has to happen. Uh, we're seeing that in Fortune 500 kind of companies, big companies taking large initiatives to do um, these these cross silo collaborations. So, um so it's, uh, I think everyone is trying to transcend those silos. Now, the way that Anaconda plays a role there is that uh, I would say there's two primary ways. One, we, we provide a easy to access, easy to install collection of very powerful open source tools that are now industry standard. Um, and the practitioners, the, the data scientists and data analysts that use our tools, they're, many of them are actually new to a corporate environment, right? Um, but they're doing very important work. And so they take our collection of open source tools, they're able to use them in whatever line of business they're in, uh, whatever domain specific area, they can just install it on Windows or Mac, they have some Linux servers, it sort of runs anywhere. And then they have the latest and greatest, the cutting edge machine learning or data analytics or visualization tools. They can pull in any data, do any number of uh, analytics, um, very, very powerful stuff. And it's right there. It meets those users right where they are. And those users tend to be embedded in specific business groups or focus areas. So that's one way that we're actually bridging that silo is that we're, in a sense, democratizing this kind of capability outside of what used to be very ivory towered, like center of analytics or the predictive analytics group. We're just making this available to everybody. So everyone can get it now. So that's one way we're kind of helping to bring awareness of the power that's there. Um, the second thing then is, of course, once this sort of capability goes everywhere and people start building models, people start writing code who are not traditional software developers and there's governance questions, there's reproducibility, there's accountability, there's deployment, there's all of these things that now surface as a need. So into that need, we vend uh, our enterprise platform. 
and that helps IT and data and ops people have visibility into how to manage the the software supply chain, how to manage the deployed containers, how to manage all of these different things that are being used by all of these data scientists uh, across the, the business. So in both ways, we're sort of um, we're sort of increasing the water level and we're sort of giving everyone kayaks, right? So that's we're sort of doing both of that. I think uh, we we want to hit on both both ways because both are important. <laughs> And, uh, you know, in preparing for this pod, as you know, we were, we were talking about taking a step back and just kind of understanding, you know, why, why support open source software in the first place. And so kind of going to that first way you described, you know, when we first, you know, Incutel invested in continuum analytics back in 2015. And I, I remember vividly having uh, different people come up and say, you know, what's, why would they do that? Why would they open source uh, what is seemingly very valuable. Why would they do that? And so why don't we take a step back and just kind of walk through the view of, uh, of open source and more importantly, why you guys uh, are, are so supportive uh, of it. Um, yeah. So let's, that's, that's a very, very big topic and I have lots of thoughts on that. Um, I think that there's definitely a, uh, uh, for people who are even familiar with the term, right? For folks who can spell open source, um, I think there's sort of a hangover, con- a hung- uh, what is it? A, c- a carryover concept of what open source is that maybe dates back to like uh, people thinking about Linux and kind of the open source movements in the early days, in like the 90s, or even earlier than that, really, with with uh, the GNU Foundation uh, and all that stuff. Um, so I, I think that that view tends to think of um, open source as, you know, a bunch of like hacker nerds. Maybe there's some political, like, you know, libertarian, anarchistic sort of aspect to them. Um, <laughs> and they're just like banging out the software because they don't want to pay AT&T to license Unix, right? Or something like that. Um, <laughs> and, and that's a very that's old, true. I was an old view of open source because it fixates on um, the economic value of the software artifact. Um and we actually in the Python data science space and the numerical Python sci-fi sort of space, there's a very different kind of open source movement that happened there, which was um, uh, practitioners, scientists, you know, maybe people don't know this, but a lot of the tools that are, that, that are popular now in the PyData space, they're created by people who are not software developers. They're not computer science majors. Uh, you know, my co-founder, Travis, he's an electrical engineer. I'm a physicist. Uh, the, the guys that created the Jupiter slash IPython stuff, they're uh, applied physicists as well, I think. I mean, it's a pile of people who needed to uh, scratch their own itch, but the itches that we had were in these use cases that were beyond what uh, a bunch of like Unix hackers would, would necessarily build, right? Nobody in Perl land is going to go and write a ton of advanced mathematical modeling software. But the Python stack had gotten good enough that we could take Python and mold it into something that we needed that that sort of met the um, innovation needs that we had. So we're able to do a lot of this innovation. So I think it's it really important to not think of open source as the, uh, I think the, the caricature view of, oh, open source solves well-known problems, um, some, you know, bro programmers hacking in their parents' basement, bang out some shoddy stuff. 
we need to go from that view to viewing open source as being an open uh, space uh, for for innovation. I, I call it an innovation commons. And so from that view, it's like, oh, this is a place where everyone in the world can show up and do their best work. And as bonus, the software they make is free. That's a very different view, right? Um, and I think people even tried to articulate back in the day of like, why is Linux better than Windows? If it really was so much better than NT server, why are they giving it away for free? And so many people on Slashdot tried to explain this over and over. It was just a very different, <laughs> difficult thing to, to explain. Um, but, uh, but in the Python space, we really got, I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that is powerful. I mean, I agree, the software that we, we produce and give away to people is very powerful. But at the same time, it's also just where the, it's like the level set. It's kind of where the capability is. Some of the best, um, some of the most popular tools, like Pandas, for instance, that was written by Wes when he was, uh, you know, just an individual contributor level quant analyst at AQR, a, a hedge fund. So if one dude at a hedge fund can make something that's world class, then, well, I mean, that's, that's actually, a, I think, a powerful argument for the leverage of intellectual capital that software gives us. There's no reason that should have to cost a billion dollars and only come from some giant software behemoth, right? Um, so anyway, I sort of waxed poetic a little bit here, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah, I think of open source really as an open innovation space, and um, and it's important not to fixate on the software artifact. I think if we just think on the software artifact. It's like, oh, if it's so good, why is it free? Um, the software artifact itself is the beginnings of a, really a relationship. I mean, when you use these tools to do an analytic um, or do an analysis, you have a relationship with that code. Now you want to keep that analytic current. You want to update it. You want to look back at it six months from now. You have a relationship with the software. And so the question is, do you want to have a relationship with a community of people who are constantly innovating? Or do you want to have a relationship with some old stodgy vendor who throws you an update every couple of years? Right? That's, it's a relationship question. I would say, though, despite that, when we talk to people and tell them that there are open source tools out there for that problem, the response is often still, they just want to buy it. Which yeah. then it always requires us to go back and say, you don't have to. And also, particularly in the, in the computer vision space, and you know, we've been looking at the domain for some time now. And, you know, Adam, it, it, you know, we're constantly reminded that a majority of the leading work that's out there is occurring in open source environments. I mean, I, I just think about all the current work that we've done, either through our own applied research or just through SpaceNet. Yeah, I mean... I think uh, object detection, especially in video, is a good example where if you go to a trade show, you'll see a whole bunch of folks demonstrating their ability to find objects in video. And those are all built off of really three different algorithms that have been open source for a while. Very impressive. But the, the open source is just well ahead of companies because the companies are just basically building wrappers around these, these three methods, um, YOLO, SSD, and faster RCNN, to find objects in video. Uh, so, so the open source in that sense is really one leading in charge, not the companies. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it comes down to that relationship aspect of the technology is, um, you know, the open source world may be absolutely leading the the cutting edge uh, or the bleeding edge of the technology, but um, but companies have to sort of be honest with themselves about their ability to um, 
to, to field that technology, to operationalize it. And that's where I think companies come in in the value chain. And this is where we can really, I think, help people reset the conversation. The company is not necessarily there to produce the innovation. They're there to help bridge that innovation to your, your needs, your speed. They're like a transmission more than they are the engine. And I know companies don't like to think of themselves that way um, because, you know, who, who doesn't want to go out there and say, well, we, we have this innovative product. And it's like, well, maybe you have an innovative product, but at the core of the innovative product is innovative technology, which is common, which is uh, open and available to everyone. And that's not a ding against it. It's actually a plus because that means if the, that vendor goes away, you might be able to swap in a different vendor and a lot of the rest of your stuff, like the people you've, you've gotten uh, trained up on the stuff, they don't have to change how they think about it just because this other thing kind of changed. So it's, I think there's a win-win-win possible, but only if everyone sort of upgrades their thinking. No, we, we, we couldn't agree more. And, and, and honestly, that was one of the primary motivations for, uh, for us and our, and our other partners uh, within SpaceNet to, to open source, not just the different algorithms, that uh, come out of the different challenges, but also supporting software tools that go with it. Uh, so essentially, we can start building a, a broader community uh, around a particular geospatial problem, which we would argue has been historically underserved, uh, particularly in the computer vision community. Yeah, and I, I'd say just to add to that, that in this type of development community, it's, it's really all about enabling users to produce tools relevant to them and, and quickly because as Peter as you mentioned sometimes there's products that vendors create that maybe only a small slice of that product is actually going to be relevant to what they're doing the fact if you're able to personalize a tool to add more value to what you're doing you're going to be more invested in wanting to keep adding to that community and keep building uh, new versions of, of the work that you're doing yeah I think I think the I, I like that you guys use the word community so much that's a really important part of it um, the, the open source world that produced a lot of this software, it is a, it's a network, right? It is actually a, co- a networked collaboration, and, and it's a network that's able to, you know, sniff out new innovation areas and quickly put resources into that, or um, it can sort of organically decide when some older thing should maybe be just left behind in maintenance mode and move to a you know, the, the, the community should move towards doing something new. It's a network collaboration. It's not a top-down hierarchical decision-making um, sensation perceptual sort of thing. It's a very network collaboration. I think that's what's made it so sex, successful and so fast. Um, but if companies want to engage with that, again, if they view the software as an artifact and they're just coming along, going to the garden of them source, plucking some apple from a tree and driving off. Um, they can do that. Those apples will keep coming. Those apples are free. It's an infinite number of apples from the software tree, but they're actually not deriving the best benefit. I think vendors who take these open source tools and then, uh, or technologies and package them up um, and take them to market, they benefit if they engage in that community and become a different kind of community participant. And we certainly see ourselves that way at Anaconda. We, we're, we're, we've been these wood elves tending this garden of open source for a long time, right? But we also do package up a lot of that stuff and take it to market. And I think that conversation from what the end user needs are and what the technology capabilities are 
that conversation is actually best facilitated by people who do take it to market. Um, so I would, ho- I would hope like, you know, you talk about walking at these trade shows and seeing three or four vendors all vending the same underlying algorithms. I would hope that you would encourage them to engage with their upstream as opposed to just embedding it and then going off and selling it and never going back to the community. Yeah. To contextualize this too, it maybe draw on an example that, that we've marched through in the last couple of years. So when we first started Cosmic and we had, I remember it was, it was a big event. We had just pulled down sort of our first satellite imagery and we were just looking across a series of, of tools. These are mostly the time traditional GIS tools about uh, what we could use to just run some basic analytics on it. And, and ultimately, ultimately what we found was, was that there was really nothing available out of the box at that time that could leverage some of the leading computer vision work. And it, one thing sort of led to another, exactly as you're describing. Uh, and I like the analogy of uh, a metaphor of plucking from a tree. So, you know, we pulled down uh, at that time, AlexNet, and uh, we built an environment. I still, Adam, still remember the initial results, which we were really pumped about. But really what, at, at, the, end, at the end of the day, what, what was greater value was actually starting to get feedback um, on our work and becoming deep, more deeply ingrained um, inside some of those discussions uh, because it really informed, essentially it informed where our research went for the next year. Um, and we wouldn't have had that opportunity uh, had we not, uh, A, uh, gotten involved and just used some of the tools that are out there, but then B, uh, started contributing back. And uh, four years later, that's really informed, uh, really guided, uh, at least indirectly, a, a lot of our research strategy. Yeah, we've we've done a lot to try and make sure we stay up to date with the tools out there. But the fact is, there's still kind of a lack of, of tools for a lot of geospatial data analysis, and, and often those tools don't interact very well with with one another. So, uh, the GIS community, right, uh, it, which is looking at geographic geography mostly, is very different from the computer vision community. There's a lot of potential interesting overlap, but they, they speak different languages. And, and that goes all the way down to things like uh, fundamental libraries like GDAL, which is the Geospatial Data Analysis Library, which is what a lot of geospatial analysis is built off of. Another package is called OpenCV, Open Computer Vision. Those two packages are pretty fundamental to anything you want to do with computer vision and geospatial data analysis. They don't play well with one another, and it's quite a challenge to actually even install those two packages uh, to get started on some research. Um, so that's one thing we've actually found that, that really helps with something like Anaconda where we can get those started, get those installed in an environment, uh, get started on research. And then and then ideally, we, we can package this up in something like a Docker container uh, and push it out, or even better, push it into Conda Forge, uh, which is then something that's open to the community uh, writ large. And, and looking ahead, Adam, I'm... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Peter. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, well, you know, it's hard to believe, but I didn't think we'd be here. Uh, but uh, when we first got started, but as we look ahead, a lot of our strategy um, across the labs has been making sure that not only our competition algorithms, but more importantly, that some of our tools uh, make their way up into some uh, into platforms like uh, ContaForge, because we want to make sure that. Not only are we solving perhaps specific research problems, but more importantly, that we're contributing back to the community. 
I, I think it's great that you guys are doing that. And it, it's sort of, um, you know, the whole Condoforce thing. So for people who are for listeners who may not be aware, um, the way the Anaconda works uh, is that it is a package distribution, much like Red Hat is a distribution or Ubuntu is a distribution of Linux. Anaconda uh, is a distribution of software packages and libraries on top of the Python interpreter or, or the R interpreter. Um, so you get kind of a batteries included for data science or data analytics thing. Um, and what, um, what, uh, what's built into that is a set of tools for, or a, a tool for uh, grabbing package updates um, for, you know, when we update these libraries and, and things like that. And um, now generally Anaconda is the one that publishes these packages. Those are the vast majority of what people download with our tool. But there's also a um, site that we created for the community called uh, Anaconda Cloud. And the Conda Forge project is a bunch of, I mean, I think at this point almost a thousand contributors uh, that are that are not employed by Anaconda, and they build recipes and um, packages and upload them into this open environment to share with each other. And it's an example of how powerful that open collaboration can be. Um, and I think that that's um, that's really uh, you know the fact that you guys contributed that is is awesome um, because if you think about the leverage, you guys do the job once. You say for this data set, for these analytics, use this little collection of packages. And now you've saved countless thousands, hundreds of thousands of people um, effort, right? So this amplification of capability or this, uh, let's say, total uh, commoditization of the cost of labor involved to do something like that, that's a massive productivity acceleration. It's really in a in this little example of you of you all uploading your packages to Condaforge, we see a little microcosm of what happens at scale in the open innovation uh, community around this stuff. And that's what's so powerful because if you had to, if you think about all the use cases you have for all the data sets you have, um, if it was some, if it was only a single vendor that we had to rely on to do all of that, the cost of that would be astronomical, right? But instead, we've sort of crowdsourced that cost. We've made it super cheap and easy for everyone to get access to these tools. And now you can get on with your day jobs. You can actually go and do the analysis, which is really the whole thing you're trying to do in the first place. Um, and um, and especially in this area of geospatial, I think it's one of these domains that because of the data needs, because of uh, obviously sometimes the sensitivity of the, of the application domains, um, and in some cases, patents, right, around computer vision and image processing, um, for all those reasons, it's kind of been its own specialized world. And now in the era of big data, uh, everyone is part of the same big ocean. And so the work that we've done uh, with, like, speaking of ocean, with NOAA and NASA, Erdic and these others, um, building a giant Earth atmosphere climatology community around open source tools, it's amazing what they can do. Um, you know, they're, I, think, I think they're trying to upload like 300 terabytes of uh, Earth observation data into the cloud. And then we have these Jupyter notebooks and all these viz tools and processing libraries that we've been building in conjunction with them that make it so that, you know, a beginner analyst can just click through and be doing really powerful research on vast amounts of data and having, you know, beautiful and compelling visual tools to help them navigate that stuff. And all of it's in the open. So um, it's, it's really fun to actually be part of that community. And, and we really enjoyed it. 
yeah and it, it's it's awesome just to see the uh these two trends meet and i mean uh last year at aws public sector summit uh, we had a, a pre-meeting with uh, essentially the AWS group that has all of the open data um, and essentially the amount of imagery that was being released across uh, uh, from NASA as well as from the European Space Agency uh, and being able to search dynamically across that uh, those data repositories is awesome. It's something that uh, just even a few years ago, it, I would have been I wouldn't have believed that that's something we could have done. And a lot of that's to the power of collaboration. I think uh, with that, Peter, we're, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the challenges of deploying AI in the enterprise. Dude, where's my data? We at Cosmic love getting feedback from people using our code or published data sets. But this is arguably our most favorite recent submission in our mailbag. Uh, first, it's a great reference the 2000 non-classic film, Dude, Where's My Car? Uh, I think it's worth pointing out. Did you know, Adam, that in INDB that's listed as sci-fi? I did not know that. Do you know why? I, no. I, I, I have to rewatch that. Second, please, please no. Yeah, just, or not. <laughs> uh, just take IMDB's word for it. Uh, second, more importantly, uh, what this person uh, was actually asking for uh, in the email was, when we and uh, the rest of our SpaceNet partners, that's uh, Intel AI and Maxar and AWS, uh, when we were going to be releasing new data sets. Uh, for any of you that's followed SpaceNet over the years, we wrapped up SpaceNet 4 earlier this year, and we had a, a previous pod with Nick Weir uh, talking about the results. Uh, but the message today is fear not. We have a new, pod, we have a new uh, SpaceNet coming out, SpaceNet 5. This will be uh, led by none other uh, than Adam Van Etten as we return to Rhodes. Adam, what are we doing? Yeah, we're really excited about Rhodes again. Uh, it was SpaceNet 3 was Rhodes. We're excited to be going back. So right now, we're actually in the process of labeling data. We should have the next data set out uh, end of summer of 2019. And what we're going to do is ask people to actually not only find road networks, but then tell us the estimate for the travel time on those roads. So what speed can you travel? Not just the shortest path based on distance, shortest path based, based on time, which is usually what you actually care about, right? You open up Google Maps and you say, how do I get from point A to point B in the fastest route possible? Well, Google Maps is a, is a great resource, of course, we all love it, uh, but there are certain scenarios or many scenarios actually where this is totally uh, not, not an option, right? If there's a disaster, say your roads are wiped out or there's no actual data coming into your mobile network, the uh, cell phone towers are down, how do you actually do routing, right? Well. One way you could possibly do this would be, let's look at satellite imagery and let's pull out the road network and let's figure out how do you get from point A to point B in the most efficient, safest way possible. Um, that's exactly what we're gonna challenge people to do with the data we're gonna release. Uh, so we're really excited to see how this goes. We have a, a baseline we've been working on, so we know it's it's feasible. How feasible? Well, we'll find out pretty soon. And, and we're really excited to see how that goes. And, uh, so we'll be providing updates on arguably one of the best sites on the web, spacenet.ai. That's a qualitative assessment. That's totally objective. Yes, completely objective. As well as Cosmic's blog, The Downlink, which can be found on Medium. With that, back to the show. Okay, we're back. Talking with Peter Wang, the CTO and co-founder of Anaconda. 
So we've talked about the importance of, of open source uh, software, and particularly in, in the AI domain. You know, another important topic, and really the kind of going back to your previous statement about the, the two ways Anaconda bridges the gap, is to consider uh, how do we accelerate AI adoption, specifically when we are trying to deploy and optimize into production. Um, as you guys have aptly put uh, more than once, and I love the quote, uh, if your model is not deployed uh, into production, then does it really exist? And I think this is something that, and I know we see this a lot, you know, across our labs, is, uh, is that's something that's often forgot. It's just how do we even get this out of someone's laptop in, into a, a full uh, production environment in a meaningful amount of time? Yeah, it's a huge area. I think it's the fact that it's a big challenge area is in, you know, there's a little silver lining here, which is that it's a, it's a sign of success for the overall uh, open data science movement, right? Because if open data science was a failure, we wouldn't be talking about production. We just move on to the next whatever bright, shiny tech bubble, um, maybe blockchain or something. But um, the fact that we're talking about deploying these models means that, hey, these models are good enough for us to really believe they have real predictive power. Now let's scale and operate them. And then you hit this one of these big, bright lines in, the, uh, in terms of the silos. Um, and the big challenge there is that uh, a machine learning model, um, uh, I'll use that as a general term, um, a machine learning model is a very different piece of software than traditional software. Traditional software is, you know, a bunch of coders and devs, they get some specs, they have some sample database that they can, you know, connect to or whatever, and they build an app. And that app is primarily code. Now that code transforms data, but, and of course you're gonna do integration tests and make sure that you get kind of the right things. But for the most part, the correctness of the code is orthogonal to the values in the data. It's very sensitive to the type and the schema of the data, for sure. But, um, you know, like you imagine when you beta test some piece of software, you integration test some piece of traditional software, you, you, you put some sample values in, you're like, yeah, this thing basically works. I can, I can buy a, a, a thing here, I can buy that thing, I can you know, upvote this picture, and we're good to go. This app is good to ship. But models, um, and that's kind of a term that's used right now. I think there's some other more general term we might be able to come to, but it's their code that are value, that are data dependent. The correctness of the code uh, is value dependent on the data. Now that's a completely different, completely different ball game. I mean, imagine trying to be the dev of like, I don't know, like the, the Amazon shopping app or something and how well the app works depends literally on the products that are shown, right? That kind of correctness coupling between the values of the data, uh, not type, but the values and the code, that is something that the entire IT industry has really not had to face. And that's what we have with models. And that's why productionizing them is so hard because we need to have a data provenance um, governance chain. And we need to essentially have that be part and parcel with the software development chain. 
And then to make that even more complicated or worse of a problem, the software development process is not by software developers. It's by data scientists who some of them are just doing data scripting. Others are cutting and pasting bits of scikit-learn and stuff out of other people's notebooks. They're not software devs. Uh, th- by the way, that, that's my contribution to data science, <laughs> Peter. I'm really good at copying and pasting out of scikit-learn. You know what? Cut and paste Adam's shaking his head. That's all I got. Code. Cutting and pasting the right code is the art. I mean, you cut and paste all you all you want, right? Um, but uh, but anyway, so you know, so I kind of waxed a bit, kind of long there. But it's but I think that's really the heart of the problem of when people talk about deploying data science. And and so if someone says, oh well, we can deploy this, we just put a Docker container, then you're not even understanding the question, right? Because the question is, how do we govern? How do we know what we deployed? Why it works? Why do we believe that it works? And how do we know when it stopped working? And when we come up with something better, something that's more predictive, more accurate, less uh, false positives, et cetera, how do we compare that against what we built two months ago or two years ago? And if there's a quantitative objective difference between these, how can we start from there and, and understand what changed in the environment around us? Because the things that we're building also, they're not CRUD apps, right? CRUD is the a create, um, used um I, I, oh my god it, it's 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 just simple apps that go and and yeah. update some database uh row you you pull a row you update it you push the row um and uh and a lot of business apps a lot of real world applications are built around you know fetch something from a database mutate it somehow push it back um and that's not what we have now these things that we're building are actually uh to, to use the term of art, perhaps, they're cybernetic tools, right? They're part of a control loop, and they're a part of uh, the way that we extend our, our perception and our ideas and our physical models of the world around us. They're a way for us to, to extend that into a much bigger world that's m- perhaps moving at a much faster OODA loop rate. Um, and so these things are not simple like, oh, uh, add one to this, up, number of upvotes on this Instagram picture, right? They're very different kinds of things. So governing and managing that is an entire new kind of uh, discipline, which every business is struggling with right now. Uh, every organization and, in the world that's serious about this is struggling with this right now. Exactly. I mean, in the in the geospatial community, for example, I mean, the one of the problems, right, that is being talked about is, uh, from the optimistic point of view, you know, you can deploy different types of AI models to then... Uh, determine uh, what other imagery that you want to be collecting in a very dynamic fashion. And in concept, this works really well. But to your point, particularly about extracting what values are necessary uh, for a particular product, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of thinking that goes into that. Plus now, uh, uh, from the geospatial perspective, take into account having to physically send a piece of hardware to go perform a collection. Uh, whether that be an, an aircraft or, or a satellite. And so there's a lot of open-ended questions in this. And so it, it's one of those things we always find ourselves kind of doing doublespeak in the sense that so much has happened in this community, but at the same time, there's still a, a lot more to go in, uh, in terms of how this would actually be used uh, by different organizations. I know just one small example of this is just been our experience with roads. And you know, Adam, you've led a lot of that, but just just even moving from uh, operating on a single image in terms of a, a prototype environment to moving at scale. It's big questions that come with that. Yeah, 
We've seen some really interesting things uh, with the SpaceNet effort. We've been with our partners, and then we just talked about before is, is roads is one of them. And so we've seen some pretty good uh, algorithms for roads uh, that have predicted roads on a very small scale. And one of the things that we've done at Cosmic has been to try scale those up. It's been a lot of effort trying to do this. And how do you actually build an algorithm that you can actually scale? So we've done this uh, to scale up the roads piece, for example. So so a specific example is we could pull out in a couple hours on a gaming laptop 10,000 kilometers of roads in Khartoum. Um, and, and that's pretty exciting. We're pretty excited about this prospect. Uh, and you can do a lot with that because you actually have a road network, and we can go into that in plenty more detail. Uh, if you guys want to stay here for another four hours and listen to me drone on. <laughs> I do. Uh, oh, great. Uh, but... But that still isn't quite the solution you'd want, right? As, as kind of Peter and Ryan have intimated, what you'd really like, right, is to, to take this algorithm that, that in theory will scale and you actually want to scale it. So let's say instead of taking two hours to pull out the rows in Khartoum, can we do it in real time? And, and so that's where I think really trying to think deeply about how you deploy it is important and not just toss a bunch of algorithms over the fence or up onto GitHub and say someone else finish, finish solving the problem for us. It, it, Peter, I know, I know we're short on time. I think there, there's at least two more things uh, that we wanted to hit, and so I'll be brief here. But you know, I think one of the things that we'd be remiss not to mention, uh, simply because we've just time and time again seen it had a huge impact, is I think one of the things that uh, you guys have done at Anaconda that's really well, particularly as it relates to enterprise, is not just offering different tools and services and, and support, but also offering a really robust amount of uh, self-guided training or other types of training. Because I know one of the things that is easy to overlook when you're talking about building new models or figuring out how it deploys into an ecosystem is actually getting uh, your team trained up in the correct way and actually how to use all these tools. Uh, And so I know this is something that for us has been one of the major differentiators in terms of uh, what you guys offer, and it's it's worth pointing out. Yeah, so and I can speak from personal experience. Uh, I've used a number of the, the tools that uh, Anaconda's made available for training to learn Python more as an entry-level user, but it also caters to the number of the power users out there. So it's with the webinars, the blogs. I think, Peter, even you guys at one point had a certification program. So it's it's... It's giving people who want to be empowered to use uh, and, and manipulate data to create analytics. It gives them a form to do that, whether it's through content you guys provide to another provider, whether it's your own your own uh, detailed agendas that you provide. But also at the same time, you consecrate a new content for those power users out there who want to keep pushing the edge and keep developing. And that also brings more knowledge and uh, and, and just further moves along the uh, the community. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that, uh, that y'all appreciate that. Um, it's definitely, it's, you know, it goes part and parcel, it's part and parcel of our, of our overall vision and mission here, which is to, um, uh, d- you know, democratize the access to these kinds of tools and, and get more of this stuff out there, help more people, more organizations, more businesses and, and, and groups do uh, data-driven uh, analytical thinking. Um, and so we know that many of the people coming into this field are, or who are in this field and, and want to, you know, skill up on, on learning some of these new things, um, they all have different starting places. And so 
the training that we've done, um, you know, there's a lot of entry level stuff out there that, that we've done over the, over the years. And there's um, so much of that now through third parties that you can also get. There's so many online courses and, and uh, a lot of great content. Actually, there's a general ethos in the PyData community, maybe in the data science community at large, of um, offering, you know, tutorial talks and videos and putting all those online for Google. So, one, you know, one can really get a solid graduate level, I would say, um, training in, in machine learning uh, and data, data science visualization, you name it, um, you can do all that for free. If you're dedicated enough on the weekends, you can set down the Netflix binge watching for a while, you could totally get it done for free. Um, <laughs> now, uh, where some of the, the value add stuff comes in, where the, the, you know, the reason why it's valuable to pay for a program is because you can have more, uh, more facilitation. You'd have uh, more thoughtful exercises that work you through. You're part of a, a learning cohort that you can ask each other questions and, and work in a collaborative setting, which is, to be honest, kind of the, the real world setting, right? We always are working with other people. So um, there's a whole set of things there. And for the kind of um, cutting edge technology work that we've done uh, in the open source, as well as on the enterprise product side, um, we, we offer um, lots of training options for, for folks. So um, yeah, that's something that we, we, we know we're going to have to continue doing. We know a lot, a lot of it, we want to make more and more of it available for free out there so people can sort of get self-started um, and can keep their skills sharp. But, um, but definitely, the, you know, the training business is a uh, – it's not as large of a part of our revenue anymore by any means, but it's still a very important activity that we do with our customers. We know it's part of how we're going to make them successful in the long run. And Peter, I know we're, uh, there's probably a whole nother pod we could do on just trends you see in the market and kind of what's going to be coming down the line, but maybe just as a teaser, uh, for uh, either a future blog or, 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 or podcast, uh, what do you see kind of coming down the, uh, the road for, for Anaconda this year in terms of either a product updates or things to that effect? Um, yeah, well, I, uh, uh, just to recap a couple of things that were announced at AnacondaCon. We're very excited about the partnership that we've um, uh, just started with JetBrains. Um, we're going to be working on making, um, I think, trying to improve the front end experience for people um, in doing data science across, you know, across the cloud, across hybrid cloud, and scaling out to clusters and doing cluster computation more easily. Um, we've got a bunch of open source tools as well as, you know, tied into our enterprise platform. Um, we have a lot of capabilities there. For, for cluster distributed kinds of things. Um, we have some really cool, I think, governance tools that will be coming down the pike here in the second part of the year probably for, um, for the IT and administrators, people who want to have more visibility across you know, teams of data scientists, you know, what they're doing and, and, and how they're running various things. Um, in terms of the innovation side, we really believe that it's an important problem like a, an important problem that the, the open data science world needs to solve is on data access and data catalogs because um, data sources are everywhere now. You can't move hundreds of terabytes <laughs> from one box to another very easily. So we have to develop ways of talking about data, addressing data, moving that kind of metadata around with our, our tools, our, our, our models and projects. Um, and, and doing that in a robust way, doing it in a governable way, but also doing it in a way that can be shared uh, with the broader community. So we've been thinking a lot about that. There's a project we've been building called Intake, 
for introducing kind of the data catalog concept to this open data science world. And we're really jazzed about that. Um, there's a, you know, work continues on the data viz side of things. We're really excited about our data, our dashboarding uh, technologies that we have in, in the panel project and the PyViz stack. Um, uh, that stuff is going to get better and better, especially as we couple it to cloud and to, to scale out backend stuff. Um, and let's see what I think I covered. Oh, there's a lot of machine learning oriented stuff too, right? We're working on um, trying to make it easier to scale things out for non-expert data scientists, non-expert DevOps people, um, just to get access to distributed training um, and uh, distributed compute, distributed data science in general. Um, and that's work that's happening in Dask and Dask Yarn and Dask Kubernetes kind of projects. It's also stuff that we're going to be rolling into the commercial platform for people to manage machine learning at scale. Um, so yeah, tons, tons of stuff going on. Uh, never a dull moment. <laughs> I think there's a, a whole discussion to be had just on the data cataloging piece because uh, all of us here in the studio can assure you trying to move satellite data or drone data is just... <laughs> It, don't even bother. Uh, but that's a separate discussion. Uh, but I, I know we're, we're over time. But uh, Peter, I want to be respectful of your John Tukey rule. Uh, and I actually had to, I had to Google this just to make sure <laughs> I got the quote right. Uh, but as it goes, or as it's attributed to him, I know of no person or group that is taking nearly adequate advantage of the gra graphical potentialities of the computer. And I, I think that, that quote's fitting because I'd say Peter, you, you and the the whole team at Anaconda are, are helping end users, both in the public and the private sector, take better advantage of emerging analytic capabilities. So looking forward to everything that uh, you have coming out this year and uh, be talking soon. Thanks for taking time today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking with you guys. Uh, pleasure being on the podcast. Space Club Rule 23, don't make the easy things hard. Thank you for listening to today's show. You can find more information and links to different sites and data sets and presentations about the content discussed today at CosmicWorks.org, that's Cosmic with a Q, Spacenet.ai, and our blog, The Downlink, on Medium, which is with a Q. You're seeing a trend here. We like the letter Q. Thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from IQT's marketing and communications team. Music was provided by DC Zone Redline Addiction. Talk again soon. Take care.